All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Farhan Mustafa, who is the creator, the co-founder of Graffiti. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Woo! I'm I'm excited. That was the best intro I've gotten, I think, ever. So I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks for having Woo! me on the show. Thanks for me having having me on here, and yeah, subjecting yourself to listening to me talk for a while. So I'm excited. Oh, I'm ready. I, I think what you're working on is is really interesting. And and as we talked about before we started recording, um, whenever I see, I feel like the most interesting things I find are on Twitter. And I found you on Twitter. I'm I'm pretty sure. And uh, I was just amazed when I first checked it out. So let's just yeah, go into I, it. Yeah. Okay, right. Sorry. No, let's go. I'm ready. Cool. Let, so, so let's. Let's. let's knows me on Twitter, so this is great. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Exposure time. So, so a lot <laughs> of people listening are gonna say, "Great, he is the co-founder of Graffiti. Like, is he? Did he pioneer? Like, you know, what kind of graffiti are we talking about? So, like, let's talk about what your product is, what your company is. What is Graffiti? Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, simple terms. It's a search engine for graphs, and then graffiti. So, it's a search engine for graph charts and sort of visual insights. The blurb we use is Graffiti is an AI-driven search engine for charts, insights, and data. Um, and we use a combination of curation, machine learning, and honestly, design uh, to deliver better answers and results. And so for us, it's a thing we were always inspired by Giphy as a search engine for GIFs and knowing we live in a visual world where people also not just talk a lot of smack, but make a lot of presentations and need statistics and data backed, you know, insights at their fingertips. We wanted to make data back facts as easy to find as people can you know find gifts and that's sort of the mission that we've been on so let's go into a little bit of the user experience so yeah um, well it's like i'm actually on it right now so let's like kind of like walk me through it so right now what i'm looking okay. at is on, i'm on i'm on i believe graffiti.io and, and it says search discover and share starts uh, charts from top publishers so mm -hmm. it, what's it what's a good um what's a good term to search like if i if i was curious about stock prices would i search like stock prices or what's kind of like the ideal term someone would search to get good reports back you know what i think i mean so search as if, as, as if you would kind of search in google like keywords so for example let's type in um let's see you know, for stock do apple stock apple stock boom all right so i will try to okay here oh wow this is interesting so can you can you describe, uh, are these, are these graphs? So if you're not following on uh, visual, which yeah. no, none of you are, cause it's a podcast, I see a bunch of graphs. Can you kind of describe what I'm looking at? Are these yeah, from the no, past? So Did you make these? Yeah. Go into that. Yeah, no. So essentially we are like a search engine. We're an aggregator. So when you, so I think a good frame of things like graffiti is sort of like a Pinterest meets Giphy for search and that you come in, you type a keyword and we're going to show you, visual results of stuff that's already been made or stuff that we're aggregating and indexing across the web. So if you type in Apple, so let's, why don't you type in like, let's see, try 2020 elections, for example. And we're going to show you just a bunch of charts that have been prepared in and around the 2020 elections out of the U.S. So if you type in U.S. 2020 elections, they'll probably take you down a bit more. And yeah, you can, the idea is we're going to show you a list of charts along with the publisher, the year, if we could find the year, and most importantly, the source article. So for us, it was a lot about, you know, we noticed the behavior when people search more in Google Images now, right? And a lot of those 
searches are actually for charts and graphs and visual forms of data. Um, and I think what we noticed is a big, a big home that you go into, you know, you go into Google, you type in something, you see thousands of results, but a lot of it is the curation. It's knowing what's something you can trust or not. So part of the frame for graffiti is to kind of flip the script. We, we purposely curate from like a handpicked list that's roughly about 3,300 publishers and it grows a bit more every day as we learn more and more credible sources. But a lot of that is driven by, hey, we're, we're aggregating from the top sources. So if you use this chart for work, we want to make it look as good as possible. And you can sort by different features. You can filter by, you know, any particular publisher. We also have a chart type publisher that's in beta where you can say, cool, I want to find a bar chart on the latest unemployment numbers. And, we, and that's something you can do. So I'd love to hear, um, as you're building this, who, I'd love to hear like one or two, I guess, ideal user stories. Like who's like the ideal user is this? Is it a college student who needs something for their, for an essay? Could it be a venture capitalist who needs to do some research but while they're doing due diligence on a startup? Do you have, yeah, an, like, I, do you have an ideal user? Yeah, no, no. So, so I think it started as a former and now has sort of moved towards the latter. So when we first, la we first launched on Reddit about, a year and a change ago, so about like September 2018, and the initial traction was about people just looking for random charts, right? Um, and initially, it was a lot of college kids. In fact, the best quote we heard from a college kid, which we definitely put in our pitch deck, was, "This is the next best thing to cheating." And we're sort of why, and like you know, college kids are visual learners. They type in something, they see charts, and there was this notion of charts are a lot more credible than other types of content. So often it became a tool you could use when you're in class and someone says something, you know, to learn more. It was more about, hey, I can, I can look at five charts and see a visual snapshot of what's going on around the topic rather than read through it. And they started calling it an instant research paper because it would sort of help tell the narrative. But then, I mean, so as, as graffiti sort of grew, we realized more and more users are using it for use cases like you suggested. You're, you're a VC or you're an investor doing sort of market analysis and you're quickly looking for you know, whether a data set or an insight, we're kind of taking the frame of like, we're visually, we'll get you there faster, whatever you're looking for, right? Because I mean, a lot of it is linking to source, you know, we have a saying is data without context is just numbers, right? So you find a search result, but clicking that, unless you click that source and see what that chart really is about and what context is created, there really is no point. So for us, we've been, you know, a great place to come, find a chart, copy and paste into, or plug into a presentation, a piece of, you know, very content. So like content marketers, researchers, consultants, those are sort of our bread and butter users right now. They're getting business cases. And you, you might've mentioned this, and if you did, I apologize, but are these, um, what can someone do with these graphs other than look at the data? Can they copy, uh, can they like, I guess are they open source? Could they use the images for their own thing? Is it just to, to read so the data? Out, I mean, yeah, technically it's like, no, we operate under fair use, as in like we're making it clear that we didn't create these and recording where the source came from. So anyone who wants to use a chart right now from Graffiti, we will say absolutely make sure you credit that source. So if the chart comes, you know, if you copy and paste the chart, make sure you put who the publisher is from as well as a link to it. What we're working on in the monetization angle is this notion of a license, you know, access to licensed content that you can use freely within, you know, within for business needs for the person. So part of that cool. is like the next level of growth is, yeah, like a paid version where we'll work out licensing deals with publishers to give you access to exclusive content and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd love to hear a little bit of the backstory 
And, you know, you mentioned when you first started, it was, you launched on Reddit and college students were using it, but like, what, what happened before you launched on Reddit? Why graffiti? Oh, yeah, no, sure. Okay. So why even graffiti? So I used to be an economist for about, you know, eight years. I was, I was someone that thought, I thought that'd be a doctor. I thought I'd be a lawyer, but I was a numbers guy. So I used to work for law firms as an economist in DC in the 2000s. And my job was always just to take complicated sets of data distill them down into like a couple of easy to understand charts for audiences that would I, I could lose very quickly by talking about numbers. So I had to show them something that popped. And that was my job. And then in 2010, I sort of fell into a, you know, prior, you know, I fell into a job being a data journalist and investigative journalist with Al Jazeera's English channel during the Arab Spring, during the time of like WikiLeaks and Cablegate. It was an exciting time to do investigative journalism. Um, and just by happenstance, I happened to end up moving there and, you know, I kind of hit the notion of like, hey, I'm an economist. I think I can help show, you know, I can do numbers analysis to show their deeper stories. And at the time, there were a lot of like data leaks and things coming out. So kind of made the switch. Prior to that, my only, you know, experience was being a food critic in college. And I did get banned from a restaurant. So it's not like I was bad at that job. But yeah, I mean, to me, it was like I was a storyteller. And I just got to continue that. And so my one of my first assignments on the job was to go to Darfur Square during the during like, you know, the Arab Spring on the second day of the revolution. It was my first time in Cairo. So it was to say just nuts. And kind of an incredible moment. And I'm thirty nine. So I think even this notion of like saying the sentence will date me, but like there was a time when you were aware that social media actually blew up on your phone. And there was a time when that was before it was, it was just on the web. So I remember 2011, I'm there and Twitter, Instagram, had just sort of become really popular in the mobile, you know, on mobile as well as Facebook and was kind of driving information sharing in real time and sort of had this aha moment because my job listed there was to fact check numbers on the ground. You know, how many people are out here protesting? What's the employment like? How many people are dying and where? Just sort of the numbers behind the revolution. And I remember just being mystified, like, wow, I can tweet out something. You know, people around me can tweet out facts and everyone in the world can hear them at the same time. And then I realized, oh, crap, you can also spread misinformation just as fast. And it was like, OK, I'm a data journalist. How are we going to do this? And, you know, at that time and even now, it was really hard to access numbers and things to back up what you want to say from your phone. And so, you know, that kind of like a light bulb just kind of went off in my head. I was like, if we've gotten to a point where we can visually express ourselves, say anything at the speed of thought. The one thing we can't do is kind of back it up with numbers and facts. So how do we actually create a world that goes like that? And that was nine years ago. Light bulb goes off and spent the last, you know, spent about a year and a half more at year working more as a product manager. Because I realized I wasn't a good journalist. I ended up working more on the product side and kept sort of picking at this thread of like, hey, because to us it became more of a data literacy problem. Like if you think about, this this narrative that any bi you know data analytics and business intelligence dashboard tools use it's like hey we're trying to create data driven cultures right and on average even now i mean these are over 100 billion dollar industries you have about 20 percent of a organization can use those tools which means like 80 percent are left out of data tools so how can you have a data driven culture if 80 percent can't speak the language so a lot of it was like how do we create a tool for the rest Right? How do we just make it easier for non-data people to get get plugged into these data conversations? So anyway, long story short, we you know found a team, had three co-founders actually. Um, one is a friend from college, one's a CTO. We 
met through friends and the fourth is a, a friend as well. And we're all sort of, two of us have data science background, one is a pure CTO developer and one's a designer. And so a lot of it was like, how do we really take a more design approach to making data more accessible? And so how we got to graffiti, all right, this is, stay tuned, I've got one couple of product pivots for you. The first thing we do is create an iOS app thinking what the world needs is a fact checker in your pocket. So we were like, hey, let's say Tableau, but put it, you know, literally make it an, an iOS app. You would search for something. We decided we would aggregate all the world's public data and clean it up and make it really available to visualize. Did not even realize how naive that sentence sounded at the time. Um, and so quickly sort of like, you know, built out these support a type where you could you know, go across these amount of public data and quickly visualize a chart, um, you know, and post it on social media or to wherever. And that was a cool app. We realized it's not necessarily a business. So we quickly got pilots with like the AP and Thomson Reuters and started working our way through some pilots. And inevitably, it's like, I think we, you know, we were a bunch of kids who built, thought we were building a really cool consumer app that obviously millions of people want to fact check things. Turns out they did not. And so we're like, how do we build a business out of this? And this was like mid 2018. We're kind of in these, in these, you know, enterprise pilots now, trying to figure out like how to grow graffiti as a web platform, what to take, what to take this product into. And around that time, the Parkland, you know, the Parkland shootings happened. Um, and I don't know, we were just very viscerally affected. The team is kind of spread out. We're all diverse and we're over that you know, period of 10, 15 years age gap. So I think we all had different reactions. More so, we had a lot of people knew we were like working in, you know, we were data people in media. So all of a sudden, a lot of folks reached out and say, hey, do you have any data on guns in the U.S. or violence or legislation or whatever it is? And I remember at the time, we were really thinking around like, look, we kind of were ended up building a product. And this is kind of where the mission part comes in. Like, we were building a product that seemed to have more of a business feature, but we just weren't happy building it because we didn't want to build what became just like another tableau. We're like, we wanted to build purposely something for other people. So we're like, hey, let's try building a different tool. So we get requests for all this gun data and stuff. We decide, almost like as a skunk works within our own company, at night, we just basically started aggregating manually over a thousand different charts on guns, you know, guns in the US, whether it's gun violence, mass shootings, number of, you know, just random data points you can think of. Um, did it from about 50 different 50 different resources and organizations, both, you know, on the right, on the left, down the middle, and try to balance this out and kind of made a mini, a mini graph search engine for gun for gun facts and gun data. And sent that out to a bunch of educators at college campuses. And the feedback we got on that, honestly, within three weeks was just more exciting than anything else we built. And it was like, hey, this is cool. It feels like a Pinterest for facts. Do you can you do this more about guns? You know, students were like, hey, I was able to create a research paper and report really quickly. What else you got? And then businesses kind of caught wind of it, right? They were like, hey, this is a fun frame to quickly see some insights. Can you do this for business stuff like FinTech and cyber? And we're like, huh, maybe that's an opportunity. So I think we just started getting more into realizing that, all right, we were building a tool to create data viz and what's not out there. And there, there's like, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of tools to make charts but there weren't many tools that aggregated ones that already existed. And, you know, every day there are thousands of charts being created by some really high quality, amazing organizations. And so our goal was like, cool, let's actually flip the script on that. Spent our last money and hunker down in the summer after, after building that little prototype um, and built like a 
proper search engine for charts and graphs and pop that on Reddit and kind of story took off from there. I mean, we got some traction on Reddit and we were able to use that to close the pre-seed round, but that's how graffiti came about. It was just like relentlessly attacking this idea that we still want to make data accessible to anyone. Um, and so it's taken a few different product forms, but that's where we are right now. So let's talk about the, uh, the launch, which seemed like it seemed like it was just sharing it to Reddit. Did you do anything else to spread the yeah, word about, yeah, let's yeah, talk about that. Yeah, yeah, no. So, so, I mean, Reddit was interesting because Reddit was this, it was just pure growth hacking. I think a lot of it was just like, apart from emailing friends and telling anyone about it, it was honestly just going to going and trying to post the most interesting, funniest charts and things we could just to get people in, in a, you know, hundreds of subreddits. And a lot of it was just seeing what type of traffic did that generate? And a lot was like comparing Reddit against something like LinkedIn versus Facebook, where you kind of have your hunches on what, what might be fun um, and what that might be a cool tool. But in the end, Reddit was just the best, like very quickly within like three weeks of posting places, you realize Reddit gave us the best traction to our site. So we just literally went all in. Because at this point, we were, you know, we launched in September. We were pretty much out of money by the following month and didn't raise until four months later. So, you know, I mean, like we were really, really in the weeds, but it's one of those things where we were just so excited about the traction, we just kind of kept working at it and kept doing what worked um, until we had enough data to start making sense of what actually working and what isn't. So. Why do you think, so this is, this is a biased question because yeah. it, it, just, it just is, but like, I feel like Reddit is never talked about in the realm of just like a good place to acquire users or acquire customers. Yeah. Like I, I never hear it and I have never done it. And I'm like, I, I, that's like my, my thing is, is hustling and going to all the different channels and spreading stuff. But like, why is Reddit not in, in the conversation or is it, and I'm not in the conversation. Like, how do you think about that's, that? No, that's actually a great question. So I think Reddit to a lot of folks, right. It still has a stigma of, yeah, I'm curious. I think a lot of people might still think of Reddit as like the wild west of the internet, right? But I mean, to me, just the past couple of years, it's all of a sudden become more more normalized in a way as a channel than let's say even like five years ago or 10, like 10 years ago. 10 years ago, people thought Reddit was like 4chan and it'd be like, hey, is it Reddit or no, there are a lot, there are a lot more darker corners of the internet type of thing. But I think Reddit where, so it was interesting when we were raising a pre-seed round last year because a lot of that conversation was around, oh, we didn't know Reddit was a great place to acquire users, right? And so a lot of it was like, oh, the thing about it, that Reddit is great because it's not necessarily dependent on all the same things that like, like Facebook is really algorithm driven and driven by sharing, right? And we weren't getting traction for sharing, but we knew we had more, I'd say, what is it like clickbaity? sort of content that we could do and try out. And that was a good channel. It's also Reddit, we knew that, I mean, there is a wide swath of people on Reddit, right? Because everyone's anonymous as well. So you don't know if the person clicking is like a Fortune 500 CEO or your exact user or like the worst user you would ever want, but it's someone that comes through. So I think for Reddit, what it does is it gave us a big enough sample size as well to actually start testing out our product. I mean, when we launched it, it was barely, it was you know, barely not breaking. And a lot of it was just to see, hey, when we get in some traffic, what features actually work? Do people upload or download? And then we kind of use that as like, you know, if you look at a sample size, it was a good enough sample size to at least give us decisions on product feedback and iterate really quickly. 
And that's where I think people don't really understand what, what Reddit is about. I mean, so like, yeah, you do have, and you do have to play fairly. We got banned from a lot of subreddits because we were a startup to make attraction and we a hundred percent fell afoul of a lot of Reddit rules. So I think a lot of it just became learning how to respect the game on Reddit. Um, but also knowing that like, yeah, these are people who are passionate people who are really in, who could really go down their rabbit hole into random topics. If you present with them something interesting around that and engage them, they're most likely going to give you more return usage than other platforms. So, yeah, but that's a great question because I think even now to investors and, and I think people that are sizing up ideas that, that do rely on Reddit for user acquisition, I think it's clear now that like, it's not that Reddit has, yeah, I think maybe there is some maybe there is some stigma around like Reddit users aren't valuable as other users. But to me, it's like when during our fundraising story and since then, it's been kind of like, no, cool, Reddit counts just as well as the others, right? So one more question on Reddit, and then then we'll then we'll move on. Just because I don't think yeah. I've ever talked about Reddit once on um on the podcast, and like I talk like we I, you know we talk about tons of different stuff, and it just never comes up. And actually, funny story about Reddit, I actually. <laughs> It's kind of funny. Like three years ago, there's an event in Phoenix called Venture Madness where, you know, it's pretty much like March Madness, but for like investing kind of, it sounds cool. Like, um, but, but this year it was especially cool because the three speakers were Daniel Kahn, Justin Kahn and Steve Huffman. And uh, I, and this was, this is a big deal. Like, I don't like, this is the biggest Venture Madness we've ever had. And it will be the biggest we will ever have. In my opinion, it was just like incredible. And yeah. I am sitting across, I kind of get back, I, I kind of am like slightly connected in Phoenix, so I like work my ways or whatever, and I like get to where they're at, but I didn't realize Steve was who Steve was, and I was sitting across the table from this guy, <laughs> he was texting, I didn't know he was anyone, I was texting, then I realized later, I'm like, oh great, that was the CEO of Reddit, um, but yeah, I just kind of, just <laughs> one more time. That's hilarious, like, that, that, like that, that's Reddit, that to me is Reddit. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of why I mention it. Like, it's I know the yeah. CEO of of everything else, but just like this guy just chilling, you know, I, it's just it is pretty funny. Yeah. But but the yeah, but the um one one other question, like I want to get slightly tactical on Reddit, and then as mentioned, we'll yeah, like, yeah. keep going. Yeah. So hypothetically, let's make it like self indulgent for a second. Like, if you had a podcast and right. you well, actually, forget the podcast, your chart. So you you have a chart. Right. Um, like, do, do you just find, can you give me one tactical example of a specific chart and where, where you would go in Reddit to put that chart? Is it in the comments? Would you just post it? Like, can you just tell me what that looks oh, like? Yeah, no, no, sure. It's like, for example, like just a subreddit about Europe, right? R slash, like R slash, actually the most popular chart we ever had, there are two and they went nuts. One was in R slash Canada and I don't. So like going viral on Reddit too is one of those things where I don't know the magic of it because we never know, like we've had two posts go super viral. By that, I mean, we have like, you know, 10,000 upvotes, which is not even like that crazy in Reddit land. Never got again to that level. Again, like maybe at most a thousand, but like it's some, man, it really is some magical combination of timing, but it would be these general subs that renew. There were a lot of active people and they kind of, again, like you kind of get to know, see what they're talking about, see what they're tracking these in general pretty friendly to stats like europe was a good one because europeans pay attention to more data and like charts than most american subreddits so that was one thing um but for example so there was one time a chart that we had um that we had like aggregated from somewhere i think it was from statista and all that was was that 
showed how slower internet speeds in Canada were compared to like the US and other parts of the world. And I shit you not, in one day, we got over 20,000 visits to our site from just that chart, because turns out culturally in Canada, complaining about the internet is a thing, or I guess, and that's, that's a lot of Reddit users reached out and were like, oh, by the way, this is, because we're like, hey, why, why did, why this chart? You asked the same questions. They're like, oh, everyone in Canada seems to think that internet sucks. And it was something as simple as that that took off, right? Like people just responded to it and had conversations around it. And that was fascinating. The second one that took off really well, and that actually was a good use case, even when we were raising, was like what data can do in terms of a conversation. So, you know, we posted a chart in, I think, r slash millennials about where millennials expect to work until, they're de- until they die. And it was like, you know, based on, I think, like by country, what percent expect they work will die. And Japan far outpaced every other country. It was kind of like, I think, if you thought about where the hardest working countries in mind, like Japan, Germany, whatever, U.S., they were all there. But Japan, by like maybe by factor 2x, people expected to live to work until they die there. And I've never seen more. It had like probably 5x more comments than even upvotes. But the comments are crazy because in the comments is where all of a sudden people start going nuts on like, hey, why is this number so much bigger? And then you have people volunteering links to like, oh, I found this data set that helped explain Japanese fertility rates. Oh, actually, here's the data set that helped explain German fertility rates, you know, in this industrial period versus this time. Well, here's the advancement of technology and here's how benefits work. And all the same became this like, of let's say a thousand comments, nearly 30% were all like links to more documentation and context. And that was like, it became a powerful story for us, especially because I think our mission has always been, how do you get, to give people a chance to access data really easily, how would they talk through data, right? And how would they actually make proofs on their own versus looking at what's related based on what Google thinks is related, right? Like, oh, okay, I see this. I think it's probably, you know, I think people probably live longer because they're eating well. So I'm going to go look for data on if people eat well or not, right? Like that's a person thinking that versus you typing into Google, did you mean or suggested search terms? So I think that's what we found is a pretty powerful, honestly. So like that, that to me couldn't have happened anywhere else on Reddit, maybe on Facebook, but on Reddit, it happened without being, yeah, less vitriolic, to be honest. And And I I promised I would just do one more question, but this is the last question on Reddit. And and then, it's just interesting. I I honestly- I have a bombshell on Reddit too, because in the end it didn't, it stopped working as a source for us just as quickly as it did. Interesting. All right. Okay. Maybe I'll have two questions then because I want to hear about <laughs> that. But is Reddit the type of place like Twitter where if you are someone that, you know, you just got a Twitter account last month, you're following a hundred yeah. people, you've three followers, you're like, don't appear as that credible. And like, you're not going to do that well on Twitter. Is that kind right. of the way on, on uh, for Reddit? Like you need to have a reputation in order to do well or just no, is that not a factor? If I made an account no. tomorrow, if I, I don't have yeah. an account, I never have. If I made an account tomorrow, like could I play the game? Yeah, no, so put it this way. It takes some time to build up. Like Reddit is truly a community. Some sort of, some subreddits are more community focused than others in that like, they're wary of strangers, you know, like, so if you just signed up, you're going to have karma points based on how much you upload comment. So in some subreddits, you might join that you like, you're not allowed to even post until you hit a certain amount of karma, right? So they can protect against you just coming in and spamming and things like that. 
they're really good about looking for bots because again, like we weren't, I wasn't a writer for that long, but I had been in and out, right? And a couple of us have been writers for life and a couple of us have, were just brand new to it, right? So I think if, if I think about your, your question about Twitter versus Reddit, right? It's almost like, yeah, I've been tweeting for years. I think I'm hilarious. No one on Twitter does. On Reddit, uh, more people do than, than, like, than not, right? And there's also this like, anonymity which i think makes reddit work in a different way because on twitter it's yourself you could maybe pick like you know i'm sure you can pick a funny handle and all that but most instincts from people on twitter is you first sign up as yourself whereas twitter it's like you pick a random handle um and so yeah you can talk a lot more smack because you're kind of covered by anonymity but at the same time you can take more shots as a poster and that's where i think it becomes a bit more yeah i think it becomes more of an honest forum but you can also find like you can, your first time on Reddit, it will be 3 a.m. and you realize you've been on Reddit for like three hours, like three, four hours. That, that's a difference, I think, to me. It's easier to go down a rabbit hole in a fun way. And you might, you might say something and then people will respond to you and they'll DM you. And some people are talking smack, but you'll get a lot more conversation and engagement, I think, from Reddit as a first timer than on Twitter, where you can language and anonymity for, I don't know, a decade. So. And it- what happened? It stopped working. Uh, as you mentioned, it stopped working. did, yeah, I mean, did so, you just not get any more home runs or what kind of, what happened? Part of it was home runs. Part of it though was like very quickly. I mean, so I think like, you know, as you build a startup, we, one thing we've always been really good about is like kind of having like, like backgrounds from being like, it's kind of like treating a science experiment. So we knew like, cool, we're going to try growth hacking on four months on Reddit. Um, and see what happens and see what the data is like. And are these the users we want, right? Because very quickly, it's like from months to like one that, you know, we kind of had this like that curve that you always talk about you want as rating as a startup, like this J curve. We had this curve that showed like our Reddit users, you know, our users are growing exponentially to our site. And, but what that also required was like growth hacking like a mad person, right? Like we had just a control room and we had like, we're posting charts all the time and engaging all the time and trying to, boost those stats and bring people in. In the meantime, we're trying to figure out, like answer this question, like who really are our users? Like who really are our users? On Reddit, what stuff about Reddit too is like, it's not clear. Someone on Twitter clicks through and you can see them. You can say, oh, this person, they may put their job where they're from. You can follow up and say, hey, I noticed you're a content marketer. You like, you use graffiti for that. Can we have a quick user chat and find out? So on Reddit, it'd take a little bit more to like the email and dig through and see who people were. Um, but the second reason was, like, yeah, we really quickly realized that the traffic coming through was clickbaiting, right? And it didn't go beyond that. So I think we thought we had this theory that, okay, we're going to, we're never going for clickbait traffic, but the idea is cast a big sample size. And even for that, like 10%, let's see what the people that stay are doing. And are we showing that month over month, even if it's 10 users that return, are we growing, are we growing those? And so for us, at least we noticed that, yes, we're growing, we're getting the type of engagement we were hoping to get, we're getting more return users, but just the amount of effort we're putting into getting those top line numbers just really wasn't paying off anymore. So we're like, okay. and then first it's a matter of product maturity. Like we did this, committed to a four month test because we were like, hey, we really want to see what the usage is like and where the holes in our product is and collect a lot of feedback. So for four months, you know, we asked a lot of questions, got a lot, a lot of feedback and then kind of I won't say went dark, but then kind of went to a rebuilding mode, right? And then 
stopped growth hacking on Reddit. Um, and it kind of existed mostly, mostly on SEO for almost six months until we were ready to kind of launch again, like a revamp product. So yeah, yeah. like Reddit requires, it's like a garden that requires careful tending. But you can use like, I think long story short is like, no matter wherever you find your first initial growth traction as a startup, like you should anticipate that's probably going to change and get maxed out and where can you find the next phase of growth. And as like a thing for, I mean, it was our first time growth hacking as well. So I think we learned those learning lessons and really what is meaningful, like what, what is the purpose of growth hacking and why are you doing it and what does it get you to? And being very clear about like, you know, like, yeah, if the user's dropped, does that mean your product isn't a success? It might just mean that like, no, you just need to look at what those users are telling you. In in regards to users and listening what the users are telling you, where is your where do you lie on the spectrum of listen to users and 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 you know pretty much build what users want versus listen to users but disregard everything they say because they don't know what they want? Where are you kind of yeah. on that line? I think having already something that I thought people would want and that they turns out like they definitely didn't, which is the first version of graffiti, right? I think we're firmly more on like the user as the referee in a way. Um, so like look at user data, see, but like to, and to me, that's a combination of like, you have to get really good at not just qualitative data, right? And being able to track, okay, we released a new feature, we're A-B testing this, whatever, but it's also qualitative, like find a core group of users and see what they tell you and listen to them and see how they use the product and what they like about it, what doesn't like, what are they requesting? And I think one of the things we started tracking was, you know, no matter, cause we put a, we put a ton of feedback forms, made it easy to reach us and just started tracking our own feedback and kind of had our, like our own internal most features requested poll, right? And so it's interesting because the most feature requested isn't even a feature that takes graffiti into more of a, like a search engine for charts and graphs, it takes it more into an enterprise product. And so like as part of listening to our users, that's sort of where we're going because like I think part of it is like, it's something to build something cool and it's validating to build something cool. Eventually you gotta, when you, when you realize that, okay, now we're, it's not as cool as we thought and we want to find a way to actually make money. Um, that's where listening to users help because they'll tell you what they'll pay for. They'll tell you what they want. And so now yeah. we're at the point of definitely, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think there's always this thing where like as a founder and when you have a new idea, you want to build what you envision, right? Like you 100% think you have this novel idea. And I always think you should take your first shot and make it a prototype, whatever it is, but just don't invest way too much money and time and make the most basic version of you can to start testing. Even if it's ugly, get over that hump of like, I'm going to put this out till it's perfect. Because people will even, I mean, we find this out too, like, even with that search engine, we spent so much, we spent like close to, you know, six to eight months, like in stealth trying to build this app that when it came out, didn't blow people's minds because we didn't ask for feedback. And then we put the search engine on Reddit and from day one, we got feedback like, oh, this sucks. But here's what's awesome. This is, you know, fix this, change that. I'd like to see this. And that that's where it becomes a bit more manageable, right? And a bit more real. So yeah, there's definitely a balance. Definitely think what you put out there is important. I think whatever your perspective on how you can uniquely solve that problem is going to be important, but your users will 100% tell you if it's working or not. Yeah, I, I feel that. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit to kind of an obscure place, but um, you you mentioned the, the the very beginning of our of our uh, of our conversation, 
that you, you know, started in journalism and you kind of made your way to, to what you're working on now in the current version of graffiti. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm just kind of intrigued or, or wonder, do you have any thought, like, do you still think about journalism or do you think you're doing journalism in a way with graffiti? Like, I don't know, like how, just how do you, do you think about journalism and all now that you're not doing it actively anymore? Or is it, was it just like a step? Yeah. Was it core? How do you think about it? No, no. So, I mean, that, that, that's a great question, right? So, I mean, I would joke about like, I was a horrible journalist, but I think what, what it instilled in me and taught me was, so I grew up like, I mean, like a lot of immigrant Indian kids. I was, I just assumed I'd be a doctor when I got older. So I did a lot of like science projects as a kid. And there's a thing about like scientific rigor, which is like, all right, evidence-based, making sure I, like I research every angle type of thing. And journalism is the same thing, right? As a journalist, you're going to, you want to find out all the facts. You want to see all the different viewpoints. Um, and having those experiences as a journalist, I mean, yeah, if I didn't do that, it would never have been where I was. I would never have got the light bulb idea in my head, you know, and then I think it was more of what, what it gave me a frame for was like journalists really are the ones who tell stories every single day about everything that's going on. We all do that in some shape or form, whether we're consultants or marketers or, you know, CEOs or engineers, you're trying to do something and a lot of it has to come down to communication. So I think where the journalism has sort of stayed right into graffiti was number one, this notion of credibility was always a part of it. Like, as a journalist, I need to find credible information. That that matters everywhere, right? In business, like you can't if you if you present to the CEO like your latest quarterly numbers and you can't tell them where or how you got them, you know that's not going to work, right? The CEO demands more. So I think just this notion of credibility, the notion of being careful, the notion of understanding that the sources and the content you pick are a direct reflection of you. Right. Because I think I think w one thing was always interesting is like we were looking at how graffiti would work and what are the values like how does graffiti make people feel right like when they use it. And a lot of it is like confidence like I use in a sense like a problem becomes harder. Like if I think if you're searching for let's say a GIF or a meme and you don't find the one you're looking for there's still enough funny memes or GIFs that'll get you that are second best right. When you're looking for that one piece of insight or chart that really nails down or completes the narrative, there often isn't a substitute for that. And a lot of that comes down to like your reputation, like this is my credibility. So I think, I think that is 100% stay with it. Um, and otherwise on the journalist part, I think it's like, it's a strategy thing. I think as a journalist, you're expected to, you'll get a new beat or hear about something new. And you have this notion of being an instant expert, like, okay, I gotta learn everything I can about this in the next hour because I have to write a story. That, that is a lot of like what startup life is like, honestly. It's like you really have to just be quick on your feet about learning, thinking, responding. You have to learn how to talk to people. I'm a pretty shy person, but that maybe get over cold calling someone on the phone. So I think there's a lot of just life skills you learn in that trade that help. But from a business arc, yeah, I think it was just understanding more and more that the credibility of information matters and not everyone understands data. Being a journalist was great because I was continuing around people that needed data and data-driven information, but didn't weren't that really good at handling it or wielding it or knowing where to get it. And that's the same story in most businesses today. So it ended up being like a, a, a great training ground for that. One more question along those lines, simply because I know like you're obviously not working on journalism now, but journalism yeah. is a realm that I think as 
as the power, in my opinion, as the power goes, you know, come, goes from institutions and to individuals because of the internet uh, and because of, you know, influencers, you know, not necessarily the typical like travel, whatever, but like people with fun, like Joe Rogan, right? That guy has yeah. more influence than, than CNN. You know, he single-handedly, I mean, maybe that's not true, but it's close, right? Like, he single-handedly got, like, Andrew Yang on the map. Like, you look at Google Trends, and you see the little right. bump the, on Andrew. It's just, that was the same day as his podcast. Like, do you... Shout out to the Yang gang, man. They are the, they are the best, the best, like, they are, like, the biggest users of graffiti right now, the Andrew Yang. No way! Wait, let's talk. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm part of Yang gang, too. What, how are do they... I'm Yang Yang. I, I, it's the only person I've donated money to. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's so funny because, like, you know, we've been, oh, we are 100% like nonpartisan type of thing, but we do. I mean, you know, I went to schools called Science and Math in Greenville. Love the fact that he wears a mask. I didn't realize that his name's for Make America Think Harder. That's pretty baller. But no, the Yang Gang, we met uh, a person that was, I think, a volunteer. Her name is Danny Hernandez, and she was a big fan of graffiti and was like, wait, I can find charts and graphs on stuff about campaigns like issues that affect america in one place and we're like yeah and all of a sudden we've seen more graffiti tweets and graffiti charts mentioned in hashtag yang gang posts than like in the past two months it's kind of been going nuts i'll definitely send some to you off gang you know off off gang offline but there was even a chart that we're pretty sure that andrew yang posted one day that was taken from like that he got from graffiti we didn't get the credit for it but we know people on team send it to them. So like that was an exciting moment to know that cool. Like charts matter. They especially matter in times like this, you know, to get the facts out there. So it's exciting to be a part of that. But I even forgot your For initial sure. question, to be honest. Just about the end game. Uh, my initial question was, what, you know, I, again, I know you're not in journalism so much anymore. You don't, you're more like almost fueling it. But what do you think yeah. is the future of journalism where you got – even me, like I decided to buy this mic. I decided right. to reach out to however many founders I've reached out to. And now, I, yeah. now I'm like, I got a platform and like people are going to listen to you. They, they make like, it's like, I got, I got attention, not a lot, but I got some and it's only going to grow when there's a million people like me doing the same thing. Like, what does that mean for journalism? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating too. Cause I came, I mean, again, like this was 2011. It was like literally got in there at the time when all of a sudden all those forces come crashing where mobile was just starting. And then Facebook was just starting to monetize and didn't, we didn't know then that how much they would really take over the entire media ad distribution revenue thing. Right. I think overall, and it's funny, like as a person who is like, I ca you know, I call myself a fake journalist cause I was there, but I really wasn't, but I was, but I also wasn't that good at it. Um, and again, I was a food critic otherwise, like where I see journalism going is, and I think part of, part, part of the reason why we built the tool we did was because a lot of it's like, it's self narrative, right? It's finding self truth. There's so there's little, it's like the same thing with startups, like the, the cost to create a product all of a sudden dropped exponentially because now it's a matter of coding and it's getting a server like Amazon made it so easy to get a server and spin up something and throw it out there. Right. I think in journalism it's not the same. Like one of my favorite apps in the past like five years has been Anchor, the podcasting app, right? Because you can get spun up on it so quickly and it's so brilliant, brilliantly done. It was like the Instagram for podcasts, which it, you know, incidentally we called ourselves the Instagram for data. It wasn't as cool as that or Anchor, but like, yeah, I mean, I think you have these like these. It's a combination of like tools and then all of a sudden built-in audience access, right? So. 
I thought Medium was fantastic as a kid who grew up in like the early blogs of live journals to see that, all right, there's a new way to quickly create something, but also there's a built-in audience. Um, so I think finding self-truth is a lot of it, right? Like I think that the stuff that's going to be challenging, obviously, in the future is like, yeah, there's this notion that media is now getting into like media is whatever someone thinks versus, and that could be media versus like what is the news, right? And then to what extent is news based on an event that happened versus what I think this what this event actually means. And I think there's going to be, I mean, we're, we're already struggling with that. So what I'm, I, yeah, I'm honestly not sure, nor am I that, that big a thinker or talented to even think that far ahead, but like, yeah, the elements I keep seeing are like, yeah, notice of like, you have to have some way of people, people seeing a personal connection to it. People feel they can tell their stories. Also like knowing that every story kind of, kind of should count if it's someone's narrative, right? Like if someone's, if it's someone's actual true lived experience, cool. It counts as something. The job of, I think, bigger media groups will be to give a tease that in the aggregate are they paying attention to all these like individual stories and how they how they amplify those right because people are getting so much better at doing anything on their own like fucking tiktok and you name it like i don't there's so many places that i don't know about to get discovered and i still can't get discovered on twitter so it's great nothing it's actually yeah. kind of interesting i only recently like, where do you see it too especially as a pod like i'm curious from your from your perspective because yeah. you say you're not a journalist but you're more of a journalist than I ever was because you do this every day. Like you talk to people, you learn their stories. Like that, to me, it's to me, storytelling was being a journalist. And I kind of took it as simple as that. Um, I say that as a person that didn't go to journalism school. I'm sure they disagree with me, but that helped me when I got there, right? So I'm curious what you think about it, especially you're the one who's actually on, you know, on the cutting edge of the form. Well, I think... I don't know. I because I'm so in the weeds with the podcast, I do daily episodes. Like I don't spend. Yeah. It's actually interesting. I don't spend. I spend more time thinking about other industries than I think about journalism. I think it's because I'm in journalism pretty much. But I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of more a lot of people that you know one to five person teams that are taking yeah. on these much bigger companies and they're just running leaner and they're higher quality. Right. And they're, they're operating, you know, with a bit, with very low burn because it's a podcast or it's a newsletter, et cetera. And I just right. think that there's going to be a little bit of a reckoning. But at the same time, uh, these people, like, I need to make money. They need to make money, which means that we're probably going to start doing a subscription at some point. Um, right. And uh, that means there's going to be subscription fatigue for people that want news. So they're going to need to, like, prioritize who they get it from, right? Um, but yeah. then that all, I'm just kind of going down the rabbit hole for a second. But, like, yeah. then, like that, that leads to potential partnerships with complementary publications. Like if someone wants a fill of the top startup founders that most people haven't heard of yet and sports and right. politics, I can partner with politics, Bob and sports, Joe or sports, Susan. Yep. And you know what? You know, I feel like that could be like the thing. So I think for me, mm -hmm. I'm trying to own the fuck out of, early stage founders like First of that's all, just that's just my like on this podcast motherfucker i'm glad i'm glad we can oh yeah i don't know the rules for that but like i definitely <laughs> curse <laughs> um but yeah i'm just trying to like this i, I want to make a name for myself it's almost like an investor and that's also like my yep. sub like once i have money and i don't right now but when i do like i'm totally going to use this to like to invest you know like what a fun opportunity right right and like 
executive. Anyone, you're you're the one who gets to hear about all the best things and actually, yeah, I mean, even like, it's funny because even if I think about how you could monetize, like, okay, you're on Substack. Obviously, you will, you can monetize through that sort of subscription. And then I think about, because yeah, because there's a difference between like, what is journalism going to be in the future? To what extent is that like actual reporting on what's going on the news versus it's like all these personal viewpoints on media and like content, right? So does the podcast about startups count as journalism or is it like business media or whatever those lines are? I'm not sure. But to me, it's like, yeah, like as I think even going down that rabbit hole, like cool, you have like Substack, you have like Patreon. There's this fantastic service called Purple that was like Patreon for text messaging where you could just, People would pay you just to hear get texts from you, right? Every so and then, and that was that got bought by the skin. But like, there've been a lot of attempts at that. And to me, I keep thinking like, yeah, okay, so you're on Substack, like you mentioned, you partner with Politics Joe. Like, is it all going to eventually just go back to? I kind of think of streaming. Like, I have this great idea. I'm just gonna wait. I'm gonna sit on this pitch deck, and in three years, I'm gonna repitch cable. Like, imagine one box with 50 channels at one low cost a month. You know what I mean? Like, just take it back. And so, and so, like, again, I mean, I think your point of subscription fatigue is interesting because, yeah, like, it's almost, you know, like, the New York Times exists because there's a lot of awesome reporters you want to hear from at once. So you're happy to pay a flat subscription fee. So, actually, this is actually interesting. What I'm curious about is, like, where those, where those, how, how that will, how that will end up aggregating, if at all, right? Um, or is there, does, like, hearing the latest on startup startups come from cool. Here's some input from like two podcasts and a couple of blogs and there's some content for us. Yeah. I mean, I'm your guess is as good as mine. And yeah. Like for, yeah. Cause like for us, it's like, we just are trying to get into the way of like, cause the interest point we took to it was like, okay, let's at least start aggregating content because we knew that would, it, that would by necessitation, like if we, you know, it's like we're small. We were small enough, and we kind of are small enough. We're like, yeah, if you're aggregating stuff, no one's sending you a cease and desist if they don't know who you are. The moment they do, it turns becomes an opportunity to have a conversation about what you're doing, right? So a lot of it was like, hey, we're doing all this because we think there's a huge gap in in media right now, and that's the fact that media companies don't make money. You spend a lot of money and time making charts and graphs because data journalists are the most expensive of journalists, and you make a chart and it sits in your assets and we want to help you find like there are plenty of content marketers and consultants who will pay to slap a logo onto some chart you made. Right. So for us, it was this elaborate story to be like, Hey, we think this can help you make money because this is like what the future, this is what industry probably needs, but just as well, it's a tool that anyone kind of needs, right? You got to find a truth somewhere. And this is just one way of getting there. So I don't know, man. I mean, I, I think that's a, a really cool question, but I think what you're doing is definitely on, is like, yeah, what you're doing is what's breaking the model, right? What you're doing is what's making everyone trying to figure out, like, how is this really going to spin up in the end? But to me, it's like, if, if it, there's a world where, yeah, you as Matt can make a couple of, like, whatever you want per month off of the effort you think is, whatever you think, like, is a good payment for the amount of time you're spending doing this, and you get to push that towards investment, and you have a day job. Like, that to me is fantastic. That's what, that's what, this, that's what this stuff should be. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, that's yeah. actually what, what you just said is key because 
I don't like. I would like it to make money because I am. I don't have much right now, but I don't right. need it to because I do have a day job. And it's and when I say I, when I say money, I mean like I want enough to invest. Like I, I I mean like I want I want a good amount of money so I can put it. I could be an accredited investor and put it into companies. But I pretty much feel like I have the greatest situation right now because I work six hours a day. Like I, it's, it's a little under full time, but it pays me enough. Right. And then I do this podcast pretty much six six day, you know, like six hours a day, and then you know that's every day. And I, but I do feel like the reason I do daily episodes, I feel like I I get the, I get the feedback sometimes like you should slow down because we're missing some episodes. Um, And I fully get that. And it's totally right. And I would probably have more people listening to less episodes if if I, if I did fewer, but I am trying to race. I'm like racing to be relevant when at some point there's going to be a reckoning of all these fucking podcasts. And if yeah. they see that I got 777 or like 765 episodes, like they're right. going to, I'm going to be perceived as legit. Yeah. And like, that's yeah, literally exactly. like, that's only, that's one, that's one reason. That's like not the main reason, but that is a factor. I'm going daily because like, I got, I got a, it's a race. We're not all going to make it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's consistency. Yeah. And it, it is like, you just put out something every day and eventually someone will start noticing because like that that kind of, yeah i mean it's funny man i mean and going back to the very beginning we're talking about like how much of it is like people just trying to make money versus like it's a mission thing oh, if you believe in something every day like yeah you're gonna eventually start making money from it because people, like that that energy feeds off right i mean yeah like i think more and more about like as there are more people like you creating content every you know actually now you know what i had a very much more awesome thought about this but i lost I lost like the zinger behind it, which is like more of a business point. I'll get back to it later. But in other case, like, yeah, if I think about, again, the future, right, I think it's just more, it's more dependent on how people like you will be able to like, whether it becomes a full-time job or whether it becomes a part-time and like you get to kind of set those terms, right? On what, on like how much I get out of this versus it being a need for, a business where you have to work for someone else because they're on under some pressure to sell content because they've already sold ad dollars to somebody else or they're VC funded and they have to, they have to show growth and they got to buy traffic and things like that. Right. Like it becomes a thing where you can have, I have a radio show on the side, you know what I mean? And I have people who pay to listen to me every month and like, that's cool. That's good enough. Yeah. I mean, cause to me, it's like part of it, I think is if you look at the gig economy, right to what extent media has gone into that, right? I mean, like, like look like YouTube. I've, I've, seen, I've seen my 10-year-old nephew go ask another nine-year-old for an autograph at a Target before. And I'm like, what the hell, like, what the hell is that, man? And he's like, that kid has 2 million followers on YouTube. I'm like, okay, this, it's amazing meeting nine-year-olds across a Target that will make more money than you probably ever will, right? Like, so there's this notion that people are already finding out ways to create their own channels, their own ways of making it work. Um, so I do see that fracture and I do see like what's coming out is like the ability for you to kind of control that, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be this all out juggernaut. It can be a thing that you can do too. It's like, you know, all those ads you see like, Oh, how to generate 4,000 a month passive income from like websites filled with ads. Now you can kind of do what you want, but it's more media and people will pay for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that I, th- I think that's correct. Like, there's no pressure to monetize now, which means the the I can do what I want. So then, if I can do what I want now, later I feel like it comes. There's just no rush. Like, I'm not in a rush. Yeah, and like you're doing it the right way as a person who like has built a business on debt. Like, 
yeah, control those terms. You know what I mean? Otherwise, like you are, if you're raising from people, you have to deliver as well. And that's a different dynamic. So. Yeah, the only the only thing I'm raising is myself out of bed at six o'clock every morning to make this schedule work. But it's uh, it, it's good. I uh, I'm a fan of of the hustle. But anyways, yeah. So that that was a good jam on journalism. I was not expecting it to go that yeah. deep. I'm glad I'm glad it, I'm glad it did. I am fascinated with that stuff. Um, it was fucking great. We, it was. we uh, oh my gosh, we are literally sixty minutes in, pretty much. That's magical. Okay. We'll we'll. we'll uh, start to wrap it up um i have two more questions and the, the first question yeah. might unlock another rabbit hole we'll see but like is there just anything that you feel like we didn't talk about that you think might be valuable to people listening about like your journey or something you're interested in um you can say no if you want but if there's yeah, something no, no i will and like i'm curious to what extent like to what extent because it's funny because on thursday i have to give this talk i got invited to about like oh, how did you raise your seed round, even though it was a pre-seed round? And I'm trying to think of like what I would say to people looking to raise. But to the extent, like, what do you think your audience would like to hear more of? Like, journey of getting there or once you get there? What are some good tips? Tactics. I feel like they hear enough, and I hear enough too, of like yeah. high-level stuff. Like, oh, you know, pitch deck. Oh, line up a bunch right. of meetings. You know, like, what I think would be interesting is like, how would you get the check? Like, 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 like literally like, was it like, was it a check or was it a wire? Did oh, you come man. Yeah, one yeah, and they okay. all came? Or like, I, I think that stuff is never really talked about. Like literally, what was it like detailed? Not how to do it, but like, yeah, no. how did it come I'm together? Glad, I'm glad to jump into that because one piece of advice is something that this may sound trivial to people listening to this, right? And I, I know you've interviewed a lot more talented people like guys coming out of YC and things like that. And they may have noticed this more before I did, but like I did not realize to what extent, A, when you're raising a pre-seed or even seed round, how much they're really investing in you, right? Like we're obsessed with like the product you put out, the metrics, the numbers, like is this good enough? We don't have any users. Oh, we need to finish this one product feature, all that. I think that in the end, we may have been 30 to 40% at most of what our investors actually invested in, which was like our hustle. So like the team that invented and eventually invested in us was first mark and you know fantastic guy there named david rog we'd known david for over a year and david has seen us from like that app phase to then that enterprise phase to then like that post parkland like mini test phase and he was just like every just every time he saw that we were a team that was that once we saw a better angle and we really saw there was a better direction we were kind of really quit to cut and wholeheartedly stake a flag and go in that direction, right? And it wasn't this thing of like, yeah, and what that can be a red flag for is like, oh, these guys don't carry things out to full term and they just cut and run everything, right? But I think we had showed that, no, we actually picked, we made the right choices to do that. But that was a relationship that we had for over a year before. And even down, we came down the wire with like technically it's the two different firms that we were talking to, hoping to get them to lead even a pre-seed round, which is, a, which is another thing I can touch on. But like, you know, that was just a function of people knowing you and seeing you grow. So I think a lot of times, like when an investor asks you for something during that fundraise process, like the reason why you should treat it as if like you have less than 24 hours to get it out, because you're kind of, I mean, you really are being tested on like, hey, how seriously and how quickly can you get things done? Because if someone can give me this thing in 24 hours, I'll have the confidence they'll do that for a client. If someone can handle a conversation like this and a difficult one, 
I'll have the confidence that they can probably present themselves well in the future when this stuff comes up, right? So one, the one thing I'll say for sure is like, yeah, have this comp. I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm self-deprecating, self-deprecating to the max. I'm like Larry David mixed with Richard Lewis, you know, mixed with every other, you know, neurotic comedian ever. But like, I had to kind of break out of that as when I was pitching and talk about like, hey, this is, you know, this is me. This is what I'm good at. But then the actual, it's funny. It's like once you even get that term sheet. I'm in, we were in New York and we raised from mostly, we raised from mostly New York investors. So I think I was surprised to some extent to how local and regional uh, fundraising is. So like, you know, we didn't have time to go out to the West Coast and do a road trip and build a lot of contacts and things like that. So most of our investors end up coming from New York. We did get one major one from the West Coast, but that was to come from an introduction from like a New York investor. So I would say like, you know, wherever you are, work those contacts first. Um, there is like, and the ways so and the way it even worked was that we get, I mean, this is actually funny. So like we get, have a call, like we had, we got called in for a final presentation to the partners and we do that nervously, wait a very nervous, like less than 24 hours. And the next morning get a call from David where he tosses out like very casually, like, you know, Hey, we would like to leave this thing. And I mean, I, I've been waiting so long to hear those words. I, I don't even remember my reaction. It was like crying, vomiting, excited, like all at once, right? Like you're just excited, excited, excited. And you realize that's just step one. They have a lead investor. And now you need to go find, you know, half that round more. And we got that note. We got that term sheet right before, thank, like the day before Thanksgiving. So we had to go now find, find and chase investors and close around at a time when everyone's on vacation. So like it took us because of the timing, you know, and we weren't some like hot, sexy West Coast startup or it wasn't something that we had crazy traction on that everyone knew about. We were like, hey, this is a really cool idea that we have some really great early traction on. So we still had to pound and hit the pavement even like, even getting a yes and getting a lead investor, well, that seems like a guarantee. It's like there's a higher likelihood it'll work out, but you still have to keep pushing. You still have to push. Like your goal is to get oversubscribed so you can actually have you know a bank of investors you can say cool didn't work this next time but in the chance we make it to the next round let's talk about it right and the way that worked is it's like herding cats you meet a bunch of people some people will say yes some people will want to meet you know in person 10 times however long it takes and we even developed our own metric internally to help us do this and we thought about releasing it but it was like basically called it was like some metric it was like dividing time spent or dividing how much they invested versus how much time we spent talking to them and interacting with them. And it was like dollars per minute. And we really saw there were some VCs where like one company invested that, you know, agreed to invest $50,000 after talking to them for 15 minutes, right? Versus like others that took years and stuff to build. So I think being also cognizant of like what, what relationships are worth it and how those take time, that's that part of it. And actual closing the actual deal, the way it technically will work. We were incorporated. Ours was not an institutional round. It was a convertible debt note, which is different. And that comes with a whole different set of things, but it's easier to close that. But it became one of those things where we had to kind of make sure, had to get everyone okay with the fact that, yes, everyone has committed to, to this. Now, who's going to send the first check in? That's still like a weird game of chicken, no matter who you are and how much money it is. But everyone wants to make sure, are you sure you got it? And then I think, First, Mark did it first, and then just in lockstep within like six hours, you start seeing the checks roll in. 
we had been without money for so long, we started paying things out immediately. And one of our biggest, you know, I think, some regrets, this is not a real regret, but it's like, oh, I wish we had a chance to even look at the bank account to see how much money we actually got before we just started spending it. But like, yeah, it's a rush. Like I was, it was right before the holidays. I did not, and you know, I suffered from, I'm suffering from a lot of weird depression at the time, which was like localized, which is like, I couldn't leave my room until I knew we had the full round in hand. And that was like six weeks until I left my room. So like, yeah, it gets stressful. But I always say like, never, don't ever trust the money's in your hand until it's in your hand. It's like that the oldest business advice you can get, like trust the money when you can count it. That's a big part of it. Cause like things change and we had to keep pitching and we had to keep, we had to keep generating data. You have to keep showing reasons for people to keep investing in you. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's a, I feel, I feel like at some point we'll need to do a round two just on that process. Um, but that was very detailed. I, I appreciate that. Um, I do have a, one last question for you. Sure. Before, I guess I, have, I guess I have two questions and then, and then we will, we'll call it a day. This is going to clock in as the longest podcast episode that we've done, which is exciting. I, I feel, I like, oh, long, I, 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 no, you're good. I, I, prefer i mean i like long podcasts as long as they're not forced and this like obviously isn't forced um, so <laughs> right. it's good um so my last uh, second to last question for you is yeah. what is the uh what's the vision you know 10 years from now 20 years from now what are we all you if it all works how big can it get and what will it look like yeah if it all works it's i mean I think our, our vision has always been sort of simple, right? It's to get people to just back up what they say, right? So if it works, it becomes one of the world's best search engines or even just like now, see, now that everything's cognitive and AI-based answer engines, right? But that gives you information based on data or that's backed up by data. And if not that, then like some sort of proof, like this is an answer because this person said that and this person said this. And so I think for us, like, that 10-year vision is being the best answer engine on the planet. 20 years, if the planet is around them, yeah, I think, I think it's doing the same, but then all the different contexts that we're actually learning, right? Whether it's an audio world or more visual world, um, it's being able to find you and deliver and understand the context by which you're asking something and then be able to deliver tailored answers to that. Um, and just as well, like, yeah, I, I'll answer that with a pretty funny story about fundraising, which is like this notion of the cult of the found, like the cult of the founder type of thing, right? Like, you really, you know, I've seen some founders like really lean into wearing the same thing every day, right? The turtleneck and stuff like that, the Steve Jobs style. I kind of have a modified outfit that I wear, but like, yeah, I, I know that if I wore khaki pants, I think people would think I've gone crazy because I'm always wearing like jeans and sneakers and a sweatshirt. And that's just what I always show up in. And so I remember like there was one investor was asking me and it was like what do you think like you know 10 years 20 years from now kind of here asking it was like hey google owns intent you know facebook owns social giphy owns emotion what is graffiti going to own and i was like i wasn't thinking like i'm trying to think of the elements earth wind fire like what you know what can i say and like you know i kind of just blurred out thoughts and luckily the response was like Hmm, go on. But in this one of those like ludicrous things where you're like, I'm sitting here trying to like barely keep our company alive, trying to just push the next thing. But like, you really do have to learn how to think, how to think bigger and be able to talk about that. Right. So I think 
even vision setting is a tough thing to learn. But I mean, to me, I realized like I, I kind of blurted that out, but it made sense to me because it was always the vision, right? That our vision has been, we want to be the best tool and in the end, be able to show that when people talk about something or whether it's argue or build a case, why did they build it and what numbers is that based on? Like how sound is that, right? Because we do live in a world where any search you do is basically the result you're given is driven by an algorithm, a combination of what other people found helpful, but that's not necessarily you um, or how you might think of something and not necessarily a balanced view in terms of what numbers might exist. So for us, it's building the most balanced numbers, fact-driven search engine um, and answer engine is our 10 to 20 year vision. And yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm a fan. And to... To make the vision happen, you're yeah. going to need some help along the way. You're, you, you know, you've gotten some help already with investors. You got a team, you got customers, but you can always use help when, when, when it's being offered. And you got a good amount of people that are listening to this, to this podcast and know this question is coming and they're ready with their note, notepads or their phone, their note taking pads. How can the forward thinking founders community help you? Do you have an ask? that maybe one or two people or a dozen people listening can potentially help you out with? How can we help? Yeah, okay. So I actually have about two to three things. Number one, I think like, especially among founders, right? Like we're always building decks and making proofs, right? That's something, the natural use case we often got was founders building decks because you look for things, right? Another thing is like we're basically working towards, so getting feedback on, hey, does this help me find what I'm looking for? And more importantly, like where cases where it breaks, where it doesn't meet your needs, that's helpful, right? Because in the end, like if you're a search engine, you're always going up against Google, right? Like that's just as plain as, that's the reality. So any, any way of actually getting better would be cool. Another asset would be like, I mean, I've gone, I've had a whole world of, new mental health experiences, right? So I'd say if anything, like if you're a founder that is thinking or struggling or wondering what depression, like especially the newness of it as a founder, right? Versus if it's pre-existing and things like that, get in touch with me, honestly. Like call me, we'll talk about it because it's, it's something I've been struggling with. I think it's a weird, I mean, it's unfortunate that there's still a lot of stigma to it um, that exists. Yeah, and I, and I don't mean like having a post on Twitter that talks about like, oh, I just broke through and want to thank everyone for everything. And I can't wait to have a post like that at some point in my life. I think it's a beautiful thing. But there are a lot of people who are just scared to talk about it. It's also because like, you know, like you said, tech, like the tech bro notion, right? Like there is still this kind of weird masculinity still involved in being a tech founder. And even like the oddest piece of advice that was often, honestly, one of the most successful pieces of advice ultimately was like, oh, hey, like, yeah, you're a self-deprecating brown guy. Go raise as a white guy. Act like you're a white guy with a trust fund. And it's a funny frame to think about, but I think if you're a minority and you're always wondering, like, oh, how am I being sized up? It kind of helps, to be honest. So my ask is that, like, A, product feedback, cool. I'm happy to give you product feedback as well. But, yeah, if you are, if you have questions and are struggling or want to help start, like, a support group, like, yeah, call me. Because a lot of, there are a lot of people we're also feeling the same so yeah all, all right work. like it's it's a mission driven thing missions can drive people crazy but it's a beautiful thing to keep working at something and like yeah i wouldn't trade it for anything else i mean that sounds like bs but no i definitely wouldn't so yeah 
All right. Yeah, well, awesome, thank you for asking. Yeah, I appreciate, appreciate you coming on. Definitely a great conversation and some great asks as well. Um, I guess my truly, my truly last question, where can they find your website online? Where can they find you online if they want to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. You know, where, where are you on the internet? I appreciate that. We are at graffiti, G-R-A-F-I-T-I dot I-O. Um, and yeah, graffiti but we misspelled the word graffiti, so there's one F. And yeah, we are, it's, you come to the page, as Matt, as I described, it's just a search engine. You can type in terms and see what's there. You can hook up alerts. We're also offering testing out monetization on, you know, a new Graffiti Pro version, as well as using our algorithm to search across your own charts, index, and visual stuff. So imagine visual search, but for your own documents. That's a new enterprise tool we're playing with. So come try it out. Um, graffiti.io and I think it's the same thing across all of our social like graffiti underspace io but yeah look for the chart well, well thank you so much for coming on great conversation I'll let you know when this is yeah, live thanks. honestly it'll be live like in an hour I'm like little, I'm right after I <laughs> right after I uh, right after we're done I'm editing and publishing it because I, I don't have one for today so thank you Woo! thanks for coming oh, on I, pre- I appreciate it I wonder you're breaking media at the speed at which you're creating so like that, yeah, hats off to you, my friend.